0: listening to a podcast by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. This podcast is produced for people affected by a blood cancer. We will speak to experts about current topics such as treatments, diagnosis, and research. We will also hear personal stories from people affected by a blood cancer. Please note that this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Welcome to Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada's podcast on acute myeloid leukemia. This podcast is part of a series to inform people affected by a blood cancer. My name is Megan Norrish and I am the Community Engagement Manager for the BC region. I am part of a team across Canada. Our role is to connect people affected by a blood cancer to resources that inform, support, educate and empower. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Florian Kuchenbauer Dr. Kuchenbauer is a Clinical Scientist at the Leukemia and Bone Marrow Transplant Program of BC and at the Terry Fox Lab of the BC Cancer Agency. He is also Associate Professor in Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. We are here to talk about acute myeloid leukemia or AML, which is the most common type of acute leukemia. Dr. Kuchenbauer, I want to thank you very much for being here with us today
1: it's a pleasure for me being here thank you
0: so to get started what is aml in a nutshell
1: so acute myelo leukemia is a disease which is happening in the bone marrow the bone marrow is the place where normal blood development is happening and acute myeloid leukemia is basically when this blood development is impaired when there's a defect that basically not allows to produce mature blood cells as we have them in our bodies, for example, um, granulocytes or white blood cells in general. Acute myeloid leukemia is a relatively rare disease, so the incidence is two to four people in a population of 100,000, so this is rare. However, of leukemias, it's affecting about 27% of all patients. The leukemic cells especially AML cells, they are characterized by two things. One thing is that they are growing like crazy. So these cells have um, a higher proliferation. That's how we call cell growth index. So basically, their growth rate is higher than a normal, for example, immature myeloid cells. And the other thing is they have a defect. They have impaired differentiation. So basically, we call this differentiation block. So these cells, they reside at a certain stage of differentiation. They never become a mature cell which is functional. So basically what we have at the end, we have cells that are growing, they're not dying. So basically their dying program is turned off. We call this apoptosis. This program is turned off. This is in most cancers the case. That's why cancers can indefinitely grow and spread. And these cells are immature. So they are not maturing towards a normal cell. So they do not have really a function. So their function is to grow and to expand. And that's what they do. And this causes all the side effects of leukemias. So now it is a little bit more complicated because acute myeloid leukemia is not acute myeloleukemia. So when I talk to patients, I, and, and I try to explain that, this is basically the, the term acute myeloid leukemia comprises a big variety of different diseases. I try to, I usually use the comparison to a car, so I ask them, what kind of car do you drive? When the patient answers, well, it's a, it's a convertible, I will ask them about the color, I will ask them about the transmission, I will ask them about the type of car, which which company is made for. And you can see that car is not car, and it's the same for about leukemias, because there are different subgroups of leukemias. So we know that leukemia A is not leukemia B, because they have different genetics, and this is the core, The core information of leukemic cells is different between leukemias. And this is why we initially, when we um, look at leukemias and when we talk about incidents, like how many times a leukemia occurs, we have, to, we have to know exactly what kind of leukemia it is. And this affects diagnosis, it will affect treatment, and it will affect, of course, prognosis of a patient.
0: So what are the main subgroups of AML?
1: AML can be classified by several classifiers. So one of the classifiers, which is based on genetics, it's called the World Health Organization classification, or WHO classification, which is based on different cytogenetic subgroups. This classification has been expanding um, more and more over the last like decade because we got more and more insight through research about AML and its, and all the different varieties. The other thing that we use for classification, which is a little bit more informative for patients, is the ELN classification. It's called European Leukemia Net classification, which is also based on genetics. But what it does, it classifies genetics and different subgroups into risk categories so we have a favorable intermediate and adverse risk category and i think this is more important for patients because usually the first question is oh what is my prognosis so for within the favorable risk category we often find core binding factor leukemias core binding factor leukemias are a group of leukemias that have a good prognosis obviously and they are defined by for example a translocation called 821 or inversion 16. These are typically um, leukemias that do not require or upfront transplantation. We usually try to cure them or treat them first with extensive chemotherapy and then see if patients need transplantation, like a stem cell transplantation, or also called bone marrow transplantation. Within the intermediate group, we have mainly leukemias that do not have any specific cytogenetics, but they have specific molecular genetics, meaning like they don't have any translocations between chromosomes. That's where the, our inherited, like our information, our genetic information is stored. But it's little changes in the sequence of our information. This, this is what we call molecular characteristics or molecular genetics. And, and these are mutations affecting, for example, the NPM1 gene or FLT3 gene. This is important because um, we have special drugs that can target, for example, the FLT3 gene, and these drugs have been FDA-approved within the last years. So also here, things have happened and treatment has improved. And the last group is the adverse risk group, which is characterized by, for example, complex karyotypes. That's how we call when there are a lot of different genetic abnormalities lined up in one cell. So it's not only one, it's, it's, it's more than three or four or five. And this usually has a bad prognosis. But there are also genes-specific genetic abnormalities, which also go hand-in-hand with an adverse or like bad prognosis, such as in version 3, so it affects again in chromosome 3, but it's not the same as in version 16. Inversion version 16 is a good prognosis marker. Or, for example, a T922, which affects the BCR-ABL gene, it's similar as what you can find in CML. So this is just a snippet of, of all the different risk categories and it's a little bit more complex, but most important is for people who listen and want to learn about leukemias is that leukemia is not leukemia. So you really have to have proper diagnostics to figure out what's the leukemia and what's the risk group the patient is in. And based on this, you will plan treatment.
0: Wonderful. So based on all of that, what is the process to actually be diagnosed with
1: AML? So there's not a special symptom like a red dot on your nose and it tells you you have AML. This this doesn't exist. So usually what happens is that patients complain about they're tired, they suffer from fatigue, they bruise easily, develop hematomas, or they have a cold or like a pneumonia, which doesn't really disappear. And then what happens is they go to their GP and and, you know, leukemia is the last thing people think about because that's so rare in comparison to having a cold or to being stressed out or to um, to other things. So eventually, if this persists, um, the GP usually takes blood from this patient and then looks at white blood cell count or red blood cell count or platelet counts and discovers, okay, there are some abnormalities such as low platelets or anemia, like low hemoglobin levels, or high or low white blood cell count. So, so and then the, usually the doctor says like, okay, so there's something happening there and then we have to, we have to dig deeper. So, so they will refer you to a specialist, such as a hematologist, oncologist, and they would do a bone marrow aspiration or biopsy. So this means we basically look exactly at the place where hematopoiesis, so the blood development happens, and we can exactly figure out, does it look all right or is there some abnormality Or can we detect leukemia cells? So this would be the first thing. And based on this biopsy, we would do some more specialized investigations, such as looking at the karyotype, which means we're looking at cytogenetics to to determine are there any special genetic features, which would help us for the diagnosis and then for the category. We would do um, sequencing, which is basically the modern approach of Figuring out what other SAP categories there are. For example, at VGH we have a very, very um, detailed sequencing panel, which allows us really to determine all the different um, mutations and and to exactly determine in which category this patient falls. And then we the other thing we are doing is flow cytometry. We are trying to characterize by surface protein markers on these malignant on these leukemia cells um, how they look like. And then we basically know, for example, if a patient relapses or after treatment, do we still have these cells in our bone marrow? So it also helps us with the diagnosis. Because sometimes it's not really easy to differentiate between the different acute leukemias. For example, acute lymphoblastic leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia, when you look in the microscope, and this is like the cheapest and easiest investigation, and the fastest, this is what we do initially. It's sometimes not clear to distinguish between those two diseases. And that's why you need other things. So, so, the, so the way it would work is, so let's say a patient comes in on the weekend or during the week, to so looking at the bone marrow aspirate or the biopsy in the microscope, then we would start doing flow cytometry, which is very specialized, and, and we have a lot of good experts at VGH for, for, for doing so, to figure out does it, in which category does it fall? Is it like something more lymphatic or is it more myeloid? And then, of course, the more specialized investigations will tell us Which subgroup of leukemia within lymphoid or the myeloid compartment these patients fall into?
0: Thank you. So, what are the current treatment options that are available for patients, and what should be taken into account um, when a patient is hearing that information and, and has a choice of treatment?
1: You have to see that this chain of events from a patient coming in to getting a proper diagnosis, including the including finding the right subcategory, um, impacts a lot on the treatment. So, for example, so there's one leukemia that stands out. So it's called APL, or the, the other word is acute promyelocytic leukemia. So this is a leukemia which was initially described in 1957, but um, the subtype used to be like a deadly subtype. It used to be a leukemia which was hard to treat. Reason is that It's a very specific subtype and these promyelocytes, the leukemic cells basically stop the maturation process on a very specific level. And these promyelocytes, as we call them, what they can do is they can cause bleedings or or blood clots in a patient. So for example, give this patient chemotherapy and these cells die, they release certain factors that can do either way or both things at the same time, causing bleeding or blood clots. So, and, and this was, was a major thing, especially if you have a, if, if you have a hemorrhage or like a bleeding in, in your brain, you can easily die from that, right? So, so this is something that um, was, was a very feared leukemia. However, research showed that there's a, actually a drug for this leukemia, it's called Atra. Atra is nothing else than vitamin A. And when we apply, and nowadays we treat these patients with vitamin A, Atra, plus um, arsen trioxide or ATO or with chemotherapy, depending on the risk category. But the mainstay is always ATRA. And eventually they will receive ATRA and ATO. So this changed outcome of these leukemias. And these leukemias are these patients actually have a five-year survival rate of over 95%. So, So it's a really, it's now one of the best ones to treat. But at the initial diagnosis, if you suspect that this patient has this kind of leukemia, you have to start ATRA. So this is the guideline. So it is, so this is something you don't want to miss. So you see that the diagnosis is important and a proper diagnosis, even at the beginning, it makes a difference. However, if it's not an APL, usually the backbone of treatment is called seven plus three, meaning that you receive two drugs, an anthracycline and cytarabin, seven days of cytarabin or RSC, That's a different name for it. And three days of an anthracycline, often, for example, doxorubicin these drugs have been around for like almost 40 years. So, so it's something that has been tested in, in thousands and thousands of patients and proved to be the best what we have. It's kind of a shame, right? Considering this has been, I mean, we are sending like satellites to Mars and we are still doing the same chemotherapy for acute myeloid leukemia within 40 years. But, but there is hope. There are things that are on the horizon. There are lots of developments. So this has changed quite a bit within the last five years. So it's important to see that leukemia still is a deadly disease. So, so the five-year overall survival rate of acute myeloid leukemia in Canada, and it's kind of similar to Canada, US and Germany, is around 22%. It's actually higher if you look, if you divide this group of patients into patients that are below or above 60 years. So usually elderly patient, as we respectfully call patients that are above 60 years, They usually have a a worse prognosis because they are more frail sometimes we cannot give them intensive chemotherapy the outcome is worse than compared to younger patients who we can treat better and and more intense so we have to figure out which subtype we start with chemotherapy which is usually consisting of seven plus three if the patient is fit enough to do so and then from there we depending on the risk group we either continue with chemotherapy, like it's called induction treatment. Then we do a consolidation with high dose um, side Arabin or RSC. And if it's a good risk group, we try to continue that and then finish treatment and then monitor patients closely. If it's intermediate or like adverse risk group, we would try to find in the meanwhile, like a, a matching donor, which could be a family or an unrelated donor and try to go towards bone marrow transplantation or stem cell transplantation. But there's a third one which has um, changed quite dramatically treatment of AML patients. These are drugs, they're called hypomethylating drugs. And one drug is called isosidin. So this is what we usually use for patients who are not fit enough for intensive chemotherapy. There's a new drug which was recently FDA approved. It's called Benidoclax, which has been used in CLL and other leukemias. And it was recently introduced to AML. And the combination of benignoclax and cidarabin has actually improved survival, especially in elderly and non-fit patients, quite a lot. So there's a lot of things are happening and it takes a while to introduce these things from being discovered to being tested to being FDA or Health Canada approval. It takes a while. And then from there, bring it to the hospital and to the mind of physicians. It takes a while, but its development is very positive right now for patients.
0: Oh, that's good to hear. Given the severity of the disease, and I know that there are side effects that are just geared towards chemotherapy, a lot of patients and caregivers are always concerned about treatment side effects. But what are the treatment side effects that they should be watching out for and how can they manage them with their healthcare team?
1: Let's talk about the most common treatment, which is obviously intensive chemotherapy. And chemotherapy side effects, usually you can divide into like short-term and then intermediate and long-term side effects. Short-term side effects are things like hair loss, nausea, loss of appetite, loss of taste, infertility. Of course, it affects your bone marrow, so unfortunately they do not kill selectively leukemic cells. It also affects healthy cells. That's where all the side effects come from. The fact that it's chemotherapy and it will damage also healthy cells and it will also damage the, the genetic information of healthy cells It is really important to see that this can also produce tumors on a long term so we call this um treatment related malignancies for example they can occur or secondary malignancies after like maybe 10 years or so and they don't have to be the same one it could be a solid tumor so so it's important to basically have follow-ups after treatment because of these long-term side effects other things you have to consider are like you have to see a dentist afterwards you should see a dermatologist afterwards and just take good care of yourself.
0: What are some of the specific long-term potential side effects that people should be paying attention to or should be reporting to their healthcare team?
1: So after chemotherapy, your um, your immune system is kind of compromised because you're also killing off your immune competent cells. So this is something you, you should take care about. And if you developed reoccurring, for example, colds or um, coughs, these kind of things should be should be monitored quite closely and also being seen by a doctor. So this is important. Other things are, for example, psychological side effects on the long term, like depression, just from being like in a really bad situation, being threatened by a disease which is not always curable or where you don't know what the outcome is. So it's kind of this black hole of treatment which every patient has to face. And this can produce in, in quite a lot of patients anxieties and, and it's sometimes hard for them to talk to your doctor about it because doctors are always, first of all, doctors never have time. And second of all, doctors are biased. So, so they are like your healthcare provider, they are not neutral. So here it's important to have friends, to be taking care of your family, to, you know, to receive some love while, while undergoing this kind of treatment. And also to see sometimes professional help by psychologists, or other therapists who can actually listen and give you some neutral advice on how to cope with the situation. I think this is important. Then there are also like social aspects, which which a lot of people don't mention, which is, for example, what's happened to your job? How long will you you be out of your job? Does this impact you financially? These are things you really have to think about before starting a treatment, and these things have to be taken care about. So we have a system where the patients talk to social workers, dietitians, and, and also nurses before starting a treatment. It's complex, it will affect kind of every aspect of your life, this disease and the treatment as well, because it takes long.
0: Yes, thank you so much for addressing the challenges around mental health, because it can be a real uh, challenge for patients um, once they're finished. Yep. What are some things specifically coming down the pipeline or what's the good news that we can expect in the next five years for, for patients who will be diagnosed with AML?
1: So the good news is that there's quite a bit of activity in terms of drug development. However, the bad news is drugs are usually expensive. So it takes a while to, to get these drugs onto the market and clinical trials have to be done. So this is like a double-edged sword. In terms of, there's a lot of research. I mean, in my own lab here and, and at the Terry Fox laboratory and at the BC Cancer Agency and, and, and numerous other agencies and research institutes across Canada, a lot of people think about how can I cure, how can I improve the lives of AML patients? And what kind of drugs can we give these patients? How can we develop these drugs? We are aiming more and more towards a tailored treatment. So basically, we want to have a treatment for each AML subtype. So finding, for example, a genetic lesion that defines a certain AML subtype, we would like to target this lesion or the consequences of this lesion. So so this is the idea, finding a treatment for different patients. And one example are FLAT3 mutated AML patients. So this is approximately 30% of all AML patients. So there's a drug, for example, that has been approved, it's called Midostaurin. It's a FLAT3 inhibitor. And we now every patient that has this kind of mutation receives it right away when they have their initial chemotherapy. So this is, this is good news. So, so we really want to do a molecular-tailored treatment. What is really important for patients is you should be treated at a center where there are lots of clinical trials. So we try to bring in clinical trials for as many subgroups as we can. Clinical trials are a good things. So they will help you to get access to drugs which are not on the market, which are not available. And usually these drugs are tested against the standard of care. But if you had, for example, multiple lines of treatment and your your disease hasn't responded, um, standard of care would be best supportive care. So in this case, I think it's better to at least try a trial if you really want to have treatment, rather than being sent home and, and receiving best support, best supportive care, which does not involve treatment, but rather um, involves transfusions, pain management, and so on. So I think clinical trials are the key, and, and that's what we are focusing on
0: Yeah, clinical trials are really important to also progressing the work. So you are currently funded by the Leukemia Lymphoma Society of Canada. So explain your research on AML.
1: So basically I see patients every week and I've been seeing patients for the last 20 years. So I have like an idea what a patient needs and what are the difficulties in developing drugs and treating AML at the same time. This is the good thing. The bad thing is that I'm not like a, like a like a pure biologist who is really smart and and knows in depth the biology, so I have to kind of bring the smartest people together and ask clinical questions, which we will try to answer with like state of the art research. And something that my lab has been developing interest in is is our mitochondria, like targeting mitochondria. We're also interested in how to how to loosen up this block of differentiation, kind of finding another treatment that pushes AML cells that are Basically their maturation is halted at a certain level, pushing those towards normal cell development and then killing them off chemotherapy. And the third thing is we are trying to um, identify new factors, oncogenes that cause ML or kind of repress um, tumor suppressor genes. So we want to know why tumor suppressor genes are repressed and how we can take this repression off them to make them to make them re-express in leukemic cells, so that these leukemic cells again start to die off. So, so we are, in, in a nutshell, we, we are actually we are trying to develop new AML models. We are trying to target the energy metabolism and, and also better understand, especially in high-risk AML. And we want to figure out which factors contribute to the development of AML. That's what we are doing and we are researching. And we have been generously funded by the Leukemia Lymphoma Society last year.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Kuchenbauer, for taking the time to talk about acute myeloid leukemia today. If you have any questions about AML or need support to navigate your experience, I encourage you to connect with the community resource specialist near you, like myself, or to contact the LLSC at 1-833-222-4884. You can also visit our website at llscanada.org. There you will find fact sheets, booklets, and webcasts dedicated to learning more about your type of blood cancer. This podcast was made possible thanks to the support of Celgene.